Do you have a fault of the stock called Krela? Pod Krela or New Alumsa, Emily Rahli, the Tokyo Oma Fatroon Air Patreon. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this brand new podcast, Krela, with me, Emma O'Reilly. So welcome everybody to my new podcast, Krayla, which means broadcast in Irish. This is a new podcast with me, Emma O'Reilly, with support from my patrons on Patreon. Now Marisoldich, Motatulam Air Twitch, no air Patreon, no fugaro to rave a kyolkurum lum, is manamaveg kinch, fui over exula, ledini exula. So we're in pod Krayla shul, bamidja kinch, fui over exula, ledini exula, agastolar tangents galorla for those of you who are wondering what the show is going to be about, it's going to be all about that story time that you're so fond of from my Twitch followers in particular, where we follow certain subjects down the rabbit hole, we get in some really good chats and we go on some really good tangents. Now, just to give you an idea of what to expect, the podcasts are by and large going to be in English, but I want to make sure there's always a little bit of inclusion of the Irish language because it's just really important to me. So even if you don't quite get it, don't worry, it's always going to be a follow-up of a translation of what I've just said so that nobody gets left out but everybody gets a chance to experience and hear this fabulous language. So you might think there was a bit of pressure around picking the first topic for this inaugural podcast but actually it was a total no-brainer because all of you ask me all the time about the Irish language especially when it comes up during our live streams. Um, many people come up to me at gigs and they just love hearing the Irish language there's so much interest in it and I thought that that would be a wonderful first topic. Now I want you to brace yourself because this is a complex topic and it occupies a complex place in the Irish psyche. For some of us the Irish language represents a sort of vitality that has survived even many many years of colonial um, suppression. For others it's a source of shame we remember when we were in school and we were expected to be able to just, you know, read out a play in this language when we'd never been given a fighting chance to learn it. So the way we interact with it in the modern day is checkered by our history and also by modern day politics. We all know that no government is perfect. We all know that no government has perfect policies. We all know that Political will is often lacking in areas that are crucially important where culture is concerned and the protection, conservation and then flourishing of culture is concerned regardless of the language that it's in, whether it's in the dominant economic language or whether it's in the minority language when you're in a country that is um, bilingual for whatever reason. So today's podcast is going to take you on a journey through the language with plenty of beautiful tangents along the way to really give you a depth of understanding of how this language has survived, what twists and turns it took that have helped to to travel all the way from the Indian continent to our tiny little island where it is still spoken today, even if it is not spoken by the majority. Our guest today comes at the Irish language from many different angles. 
and this is a language that our guest grew up speaking. This is a language that our guest taught through the education system as a teacher and then was later working as a principal. So the whole educational perspective of how this language has been treated in the modern day is very much in this person's DNA. They've won awards for their writing in Irish and children's literature. And they've also won awards for releasing graphic novels in Irish, in particular, the Grania Whale graphic novel, which is about the Pirate Queen. There's also graphic novels that he has written and released about St. Patrick and other Irish folklore stories, which I cannot recommend enough. This person also has two masters in the Irish language, one in modern Irish and one in old and middle Irish. So we really are dealing with someone who has a true deep grounding expertise and love of this language. I am very proud to call him my uncle, Coley. So without further ado, let's head on this journey through the Irish language from Old Irish to Modern Day Irish. Colman O'Rahilly, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Emma. Yes. So um, I mentioned there that you have done, a, well, two masters because you just can't get enough. Uh, one in Modern Irish and then another in um, Middle to Old Irish. So. Could you take us kind of on a journey through the language itself from the old to the middle to the modern? Well, when we talk about the Irish language as the Irish language, um, it's it's the history of the language as it has been since it first came to Ireland. Obviously, like all languages, there has been evolution over the years. So the language that came to Ireland, uh, supposedly with the Celts, is a different sounding language and so on than what it is today. But the roots of it are, the roots of the modern Irish language are what came to Ireland with the Celts. And it's thought that that arrival was sometime about four, four or 500 BC and that the Celts were a people who came originally from Central Europe. But before that again, uh, that the origins of the language that they spoke and the languages that they spoke, because they spoke several different languages, um, but they were all rooted in northern India, the area that's now Pakistan and Bangladesh, that kind of area. So Irish is therefore known as an Indo-European language. That is to say that it has roots in India or that the Indian continent, subcontinent, and in Europe. And at the time that Caesar was writing, for example, there were many Celtic tribes warring with the Romans in the middle of Europe, in Germany and Belgium and these kinds of places. And at the same time, the Celtic language had come to Ireland some hundreds of years before that. Now, how the Celts came to Ireland is an interesting subject in its own right. There are two schools of thought, but the one that's most favoured, I think, by scholars nowadays is that they probably came up by sea from the Iberian Peninsula and that they came into different parts of Ireland. And the Celts were, uh, as we used to teach the children in school, the Celts were a warlike race. Hmm. Uh, and they were a warlike race, but probably most races were warlike at that time. And if you consider that the Greeks and the Romans considered themselves to be very cultural, most of their literature or a lot of their literature is about wars because they were constantly at war. So uh, to call the uh, Celts, who were at war barbarians, as uh, Julius Caesar did, is a little bit ironic. But of mm. course, history and the accounts of history are always written by the winners. 
So in any event, Ireland has had the Irish language now for over 2,000 years. And the form of Irish that came originally, there are traces of that, we believe, still in the language. They're certainly to be found widely in the old Irish language. The old Irish language was a spoken language. It wasn't a written language as we would understand it. Although there was a specific form of uh, writing called OAM, that's Mm -hmm. O-G-H-A-M. And this consisted of uh, writing lines on the edges of standing stones. And these would be carved into the stone. And because there was such a restricted nature to that type of writing, usually what these inscriptions contained was the names of people or the names of a place, but more, most, most commonly the names of people. And fascinatingly, uh, sometime later, there were dual ohm stones and indeed triple ohm stones. Some have been found in Wales and in Britain that have Latin, wow. Irish in the written form, and also the ohm with the, the lines and the dots. So in Ireland, they're predominantly lines. Although there is one, which I have to mention, there was a stone found in Clonmacnoise, which is one of the big monastic centres of early medieval Ireland and late medieval Ireland as well. And it, it read Colmon, which is my own name. Oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> but it, Colmon was written, but then in the bo- on the bottom, uh, in Ohm, was written the word Bokht, which means poor. And But it didn't mean poor Coleman in the sense of being sorry for him. It meant Coleman, the ascetic, or the po- or the one who had no ri- riches or who kept himself, um, shall we say, uh, away from uh, the important things of life as we would see them in our society. So, so therefore, there was variety in that writing. But writing in the Irish language only took off after the arrival of Christianity. Because, as you know, Christianity came to Ireland sometime in the 5th century. It came before St. Patrick, but St. Patrick had a galvanising effect to some extent after he came. Perhaps not the same effect that uh, we would like to think when we celebrate St. Patrick's Day, but he was a very influential figure. And the reason he was a very influential figure more than anything else is that he left behind two documents, which were an account of his life Mm -hmm. and uh, and another matter concerning um, the taking of slaves, which was his letter to Caroticus, oh. uh, who was a, a chieftain in Britain. And he wrote to him in Latin, complaining about the fact that he was stealing slaves from Ireland, which was the reverse, of course, of what happened to St. Patrick, because he was yeah. stolen from Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, in any event, uh, St. Patrick and the arrival of Christianity had a revolutionary effect in a number of ways. Obviously, it brought a new religion to Ireland, which over time, absorbed and supplanted the pagan religion, as it was called, which was basically the Celtic uh, religion, the Celtic, the pagan, the Druidic uh, religion. Mm-hmm. And over time, the feasts of the Celts, for example, like Imbolc, which was the first day of spring, mm-hmm. Balthana, which was the first day of uh, summer, May, and Samhain and all the other feasts that we have, the, the November feast, they all became Christianized. But they are basically pagan in their origin. They've just had a veneer of Christianity imposed upon them. Mm-hmm. And Christianity was, if you like, imperial with a small eye in the sense that it took over, not by suppressing, but by absorbing 
uh, yes. what was there before it. So once Christianity arrived, Latin arrived with it because Latin was the, uh, the language of the church, the universal church at that, by that stage. Remember that Latin wasn't the original language of the church. It would have been Aramaic, probably, mm-hmm. probably, which was the language that Jesus spoke and his followers and his brothers and the various people who came out. Over time, the Christian religion spread and eventually, after a number of centuries, its capital was in Rome. And that's why Latin was the language of Christianity. So when Latin came to Ireland, it brought with it another important dimension, which was writing. And religion took off uh, in a big way, the Christian religion in Ireland, and it became a very sought-after, must-have doctrine and lifestyle for people. And those who became monks or priests or whatever they were at the time, the, if you like, the, the engine of the, the propagation of Christianity, mm-hmm. they were predominantly from the wealthier classes in the Celts. So, for example, the sons of chieftains, and all of these people, because there was learning involved. And mm-hmm. learning was a prize in the Ireland of the time. This this was a new form of learning, which it involved learning other languages, uh, notably Latin, and also learning a skill that came with Latin, which was the skill of writing. Mm-hmm. So over a period of time, over a period of a couple of centuries, the Irish Christian church became established, strongly established, even the remnants of paganism for a couple of hundred years as well. And at the same time, writing began to grow in importance. And the first manuscripts began to be written in Ireland. They were not written in Irish, they were written in Latin. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the oldest that we have is the Psalter of Columcilla. Psalter Columcilla. And a Psalter is a a book of Psalms. It's Mm -hmm. P-S-A-L-T-E-R, which obviously resembles the word Sam. And the big step forward then began when the occasional Irish word was written by the Irish monk as he would have spelt it in Latin. Mm. And eventually they began to write little phrases on the margins. And over time there came about bilingualism in the writing. And then finally we were writing manuscripts in Irish. And that is to say in Old Irish. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the important developments uh, with Latin was it was a culturally enriching experience for the Irish language because practically every word that existed in Latin became an Irish word also. So there was an Irish version of every word. Right. So, for example, scriv obviously comes from the same Latin word as script. Yes. And a scriptorium is a place where writing goes on. And I think scripto is the verb, but I'm, my Latin is now uh, so far in my distant past that I can't remember. But yeah. uh, the word lower, for example, which is a book, the old Irish for that was lur, which would have been written down L-E-B with a dot over the B-O-R, which came from the word liber, which is the yes. Latin for book. Of course, yeah. And um, oh. uh, a cell was... Uh, Kellus, I think it was in Latin. Um, that became the word kill in Irish, and we have that word all over the country. We do, first yeah. cell. And the original churches were very small, so they were like cells. So that's why so many church places or sites of ancient churches are called kill Colmon or kill Davnit or kill whatever. But mm. it comes again, it comes from the Latin word. 
So the original uh, names of people in Irish then were also spelt and written down according to the Latin alphabet and to the Latin sounding system. So old Irish began to be written down and eventually the texts became to, uh, began to describe things other than just religious matters. Bear in mind that the original writings, whether they were in Latin or Irish, later in Irish, were all about Christianity and about the Bible and the life of the saint or whatever. But then they began to write down, most fascinatingly probably from a historical point of view, the legends and the myths that existed among them as a people. Mm-hmm. So, for example, most famously have the cycles of the Ruriot, which is known as the Ulster Cycle, but which is essentially a mythological cycle which describes battles and wars that took place supposedly in the Iron Age between people from the province of Connacht and the province of Ulster, but people from other parts of Ireland were involved in that as well. So these these were the first examples of non-religious literature that were written down in Ireland. And the poetry, the early Irish poetry, was even better that because you had Irish poets, you had Irish writers in Ireland, but you also had them in other parts of Europe as the centuries went on. Mm. And it became a custom of the Irish monks to write down little, what were called glasses, on the sides of the documents that they were writing. And these glasses could be an explanation of the word that was in Latin and its grammar. But they could also write books, and they wrote them in Irish. And they wrote little ditties, which is to say small little poems in Irish. So you got little gems like four-liners, like, for example, to go to Rome, is it's called, is one of them. To go to Rome, great trouble, little benefit, for you will not find there what you did not bring with you. Oh, wow. That is to say... You can't go to Rome without faith, expecting to find it in Rome. So yeah. That's a simple example of it. And then there are lots of funny ones, and then there are lots of secular ones. And you begin to get ones with double entendres in them, oh. which shows that the monks had a broader mind than the, the Christian church that came <laughs> after it, we'll say, in the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of that kind of thing in it as well. So... All of these original Irish glasses are written on the verges and on the margins of manuscripts, right? And there are many hundreds, indeed thousands of these, and they've all been gathered together. So there's a big thesaurus of all of these, which I have down two volumes of it down in the um, study there. But these were the foundations, incredibly, that were used in the 19th and early 20th century by scholars many of them from Germany and from other countries in Europe, Mm -hmm. to reconstruct the grammar and the syntax of Old Irish. Wow. So, for example, the most famous of the Irish scholars who wrote a grammar of Old Irish was a man by the name of Rudolf Thurnason. And Thurnason was not an Irishman, but he was an expert in uh, ancient languages and deciphering them and working on them. And he devoted most of his academic life to developing a grammar of Old Irish. Now, there were other scholars as well, Binchy and Bergen and Best and all of these. Binchy was the father of Maeve Binchy, ah. uh, the famous writer. Wow. Yeah, he, was a, he was a well-known Irish scholar in the mid-50s. Another man who studied Old Irish 
what wasn't a noted scholar as such was Miles Nagopoli. Oh yeah. Uh, he was he was very interested in old Irish. He studied it in UCD mm. under those guys, Binchy and Bergen and Best, and he wrote a very funny poem about them. Oh right. Uh, unfortunately, I can't remember any lines from it now. What I'm saying, I suppose, is that great blossoming took place once the skill of writing had established itself. And it established itself through the Christian church, originally in Latin, subsequently by the 10th, 10th, 11th century, you had a massive burgeoning of writing in Irish. And many of the original manuscripts, of course, perished. By its nature, as well, manus, and again, a Latin word, is hand, mm-hmm. and script comes from uh, a writing, shall we say. So in Irish, it's love scriven, which is a hand. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the unfortunate thing about it was, by definition, each one was unique. So if you wrote a book, if somebody wanted a copy of that, they had to copy the whole book by hand, mm-hmm. right? And that's gives us the legend of how St. Colum Killa left Ireland because it was a famous battle at Kuldrevna, I think it was, up in the borders of Ulster somewhere, where Colum Killa was, Colum Killa was a, 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 a member of the Enel dynasty. Mm-hmm. And he was involved in that battle. And the battle was over the possession of a book or the rights to a book. And the king had given the verdict to every cow, her calf, and to every book, its copy. So that the copy belonged by right, according to the ruling of the king, whoever wrote the original or had the original book. So apparently there was a battle over this. And Colum Killa afterwards was filled with remorse over all the people who died. So he went into exile for the rest of his life and he never came back to Ireland. He established, obviously, a monastery in Iona Mm -hmm. on the coast of Scotland. And that led to the Christianization of half of Scotland. Right. And um, at, there was a period in the 7th, 8th, 9th centuries when you had what might have been called a Celtic sort of church. Not a very accurate definition, but it's, it's used as shorthand. Certainly in the 5th, 6th centuries, you had a Celtic church. And that covered uh, large parts of Ireland, all of the islands on the coast of Scotland, and half of what we now know as Scotland. And Scotland is known as Scotland because the word Scottus means Irish, Irishman. And the Irish language was a spoken language in Scotland and still is in small pockets as the Gaelic language. Mm-hmm. But the Christian church, the Irish Christian church, was the church that was in Scotland. It was in, par- in considerable parts of England. So, for example, South of Scotland, you have a place called Northumbria. The Christian church that was in Northumbria was the Celtic Irish Christian church. And wow. you had Irish monks there, St. Coleman, after whom I named and who this parish is named after and who's buried in Inish Bothan. He was the third bishop of Lindisfarne. Wow. And uh, the two previous bishops were both Irishmen. St. Aidan was one of them. I can't remember who the second one was. And they came from Myona. Wow. And the king in that area, whose name won't come to me now either, was married to an Irish woman. And the king was a fluent Irish speaker. And it is thought, although it cannot be proven, that his son 
that he himself or his son, I can't remember now, was educated in Ireland in an Irish monastery. So that's why they were Irish speakers. So Irish and the Irish Christian religion had a strong foothold in the neighbouring island as well as in this island. But as time passed, the Roman church, which had its roots in the south of England, or in Rome originally, of course, but in the south of England, superseded in England the, the Celtic church. Uh, but not in the, in Scotland for a considerable period of time. And you had a, it all centred around the date of Easter, where there was a row over the date of Easter. The Celtic Church celebrated it at one time. The Roman Church celebrated it at a different time. And there was a synod held in a place called Whitby, southern in England. At that, it was ruled that the Roman Church version of the date of Easter was going to be the date of Easter from now on. And St. Coleman was then are at that synod against this and mm. we have from Bede the English historian a full account of that debate oh wow yeah and St. Coleman's arguments were put up and St. Coleman cited St. Colum Killa the, his as he called him his holy father um, as the source of the argument for the Celtic church and the king, who was sympathetic to the Celtic Church, but whose wife adhered to the Roman Church, right, celebrating Easter at a different time, and they were abstaining from sex and so on for the period of Lent. But when his period of abstinence elapsed, hers unfortunately had not, because she was following the Roman uh, calendar. Oh God! Uh, this, was, this was creating unexpected difficulties for people. But <laughs> in any event. Uh, St. Coleman lost the argument because the king asked the advocate on behalf of the Roman church, who he was citing as his holy father, if you like, and he cited St. Peter and St. Paul, who were disciples of Jesus. So that was said to trump the venerable St. Colum Killa. And St. Coleman, who, like myself, was an impatient man, uh, <laughs> threw, it, threw his arms in the air and stormed out and left that place. So from there on, it was an English uh, bishopric rather than an Irish one. And St. Coleman went back to the island of Iona, where he's believed to have spent two or three years. And he was accompanied by the English monks who were his followers. Ah. And by the Irish monks who were his followers. And he was ascetic, uh, we believe, but he was widely respected by those monks. So at a certain point, they set out from Iona and they travelled by boat, I think, along the north coast of Ireland, down the west coast of Ireland until they came to the island of Inishbofin. And they set up mm. a monastery. And in time, a dispute arose between the English monks and the Irish monks. Surprise, surprise. The English monks were diligent in their work, according to Bede, the English historian who wrote this down, uh, and were doing the, the crop sowing and all of that kind of thing and tilling the fields. The Irish monks were going off visiting relations in the mainland and God knows what else, and coming back in the autumn to find out what was for dinner. And anyway, <laughs> there was there was a dispute between the two, and St. Coleman decided that the situation was intolerable, and he went on to the mainland, and he came to a place not far from where I'm sitting, which was called in Old Irish Mog No, which means the plain of the U. And yeah. he negotiated with the local chieftain for a, a site to build a monastery. 
And the chieftains were anxious to do that kind of thing because they believed that by donating land to the church, they were guaranteeing their passage into heaven. So the mm -hmm. king not only donated the site, but he got his people to build a monastery there. And St. Coleman brought his English monks to that place, which uh, in Irish subsequently was called Muyo na Saxon, Mayo of the Saxons. And that village was the place which later gave its name to the county of Mayo. And it was in its own right a diocese until for four or five hundred years. Wow. Yeah. And it had other houses uh, or sub uh, branches around the area where I live here. So you have a lot of place names around here which have ecclesiastical um, meanings to them. Like you have, for example, um, well, Kilcolmine, which is the Church of Colman, mm -hmm. which we don't think he had any connection with, but it gives its name to our parish here. You have mm -hmm. Loga Champel, which is mm -hmm. locus, the Latin word is log in Irish, um, mm -hmm. the place of the church, Loga Champel, mm -hmm. but there's no trace of any church there. And yeah. you have um, Garianaba, the, the Garden of the Abbot. Again, there's oh. no trace of any church there. Yeah. So these are places that are approximately 500 meters from where I'm sitting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, that's a very detailed uh, account of just one person. I mention it because obviously I have a particular interest in St. Coleman, but it gives you an idea of how fluid and how international in some respects the Irish Christian uh, movement was and how the Irish language was traveling with it. The interesting thing about Mayo Abbey, though, was that the Saxon language was the language and the Latin language predominantly in that monastery because obviously it was where the English monks were. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, St. Coleman went back out to Inish Bothan once he had established that monastery there and that's where he died and was buried. Mm -hmm. But Moyona Saxon continued to thrive for several hundred years after that. It was attacked mm -hmm. even by the Vikings, we believe. How they got there, we're not too sure, but it's thought to have been attacked by them. So... I'm digressing now from the main subject of the Irish language. I think that's an important digression in many ways, though, because for those of us who wouldn't have the depth of knowledge that you have, Colin, we would still know about, well, certainly as Irish people, we would still know about this period of Ireland being the land of saints and scholars. Yes. This is very much the time that you're describing and Irish scholarship and and faith was was known in, in lots of areas much, much further than Ireland. Yes. I think in the Blurney Bay Legis podcast, the uh, National Folklore Archives podcast, they've talked about this as well. What you've mentioned with um, the Irish roots being in Indo-European languages and how you talk about the spread of this religion, which and religions are very intermingled with culture. So you're spreading that culture right through a country that a lot of people only ever think as being colonizing one way. Yes. You know, you talk about the imperialism with a small eye, but Irish culture was was making waves for want of a better term. And a lot of what we were learning, there was much more exchange between countries and, and places. We're very nationalistic in our outlooks these yes. days. But that, and it's not that there weren't kind of like territories that people wanted to defend and claim. But the concept of nations wasn't quite the same thing back then. There was much more fluidity in exchanging of traditions, stories and languages. Like, it's yes. very interesting to hear you talk about how different kings and and prominent figures understood the importance of knowing several languages. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. And you're right in talking as well about how significant Ireland's influence was. 
because mm. it's a kind of a badge of honour that we have in Ireland that we're small, that we punch above our weight. But we were punching above our weight long before Jack Charlton had a soccer team. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's take a quick little break from this absolutely fascinating subject to do a few thank yous. So this podcast is supported by my patrons over on Patreon, in particular the patrons on the St. Anthony tier and upwards. Thank you guys so much for your ongoing support. Um, All of the patrons over there, you're really making a big difference and I thank you so much for your contributions every month. In particular, I want to say a big thank you to Kevin Neville, Serenity, Musling, Sammy, Robin Milton, Atha, Fluffy Play-Doh Cat, Kalina Harmonia, Alicia, Baynex, Electric Monk, Craig Kearse, ALS, Simon Wilkie and Paul Taylor um, for their very generous support and their consistent generous support. So as some of you will know, I'm a big fan of the Blind Boy podcast and the relaxing music you can hear in the background is very much influenced by what he does on his show. And I really love the way Blind Boy frames contributing to Patreon. Like Once in the podcast, he always just gives it a quick shout out, you know, and he talks about how what you're doing when you subscribe to something like Patreon for any podcast that you love, for any artist that you love, is you are contributing to a different type of model. And what that model enables the artist to do and the community to have is this. The artist gets to make the work that is authentic to them and true to them because they have this income coming in regularly they're not now focused on the end goal of the product. Basically, they don't have to worry so much about pandering to tastes, about making it friendly in this aspect, about making it palatable, about over-editing who they are and what they have to say as an artist. When you know that at the end of the day you're not selling a product in order to get your income, when you know your income is secure, you can be much more um, free in the things you create. So that's what it does for the artist. And then for the community, what it does is it ensures that the work you love can continue to be made. And it also ensures the people who are in your community, whether that's a community of fans or a community that gravitates around a particular interest, it makes sure that everybody, irrespective of income, gets a chance to experience that work without guilt. So as Blind Boy puts it, you know, the people who can afford the price of a pint once per month are making sure the artist gets paid. And they do that for the artist, for themselves, and for the person who can't afford it, for the person who might be out of work, as Blind Boy often cites, who might have lots of different reasons for why they can't give to something on a monthly basis. And so many of us are going to connect and relate to that. So if you think that you would like to support the work that I'm doing as a songwriter, as an artist, as a live streamer, and now I guess as a podcast creator, here we are, um, I would love if you could head over to my Patreon and consider becoming a patron. So that's patreon.com, and if you just search for Emma O'Reilly, you should find me there just fine. So now, without further ado, let's get back into our conversation about the Irish language with Coleman O'Reilly. 
we were punching above our weight long before Jack Charlton had a soccer team. We we were spreading learning in Europe. So a man considered to be one of the greatest philosophers of all time, John Scotus Eurygnia, or whatever he's called in, in English, was an Irish philosopher and theologian. And he's considered to be one of the greatest theologians in the history of the world. And mm. he was from Ireland. He was educated, I think, in Bangor in County Town. And he went to Europe. You had Columbanus, who was a theologian and a, a firebrand as well, uh, who went to Europe and established monasteries in various parts of Europe. And you had many other saints who travelled abroad and carried Christianity with them. And they are commemorated in monasteries in Bobbio and all kinds of places, St. Gaul in Switzerland and all kinds of places. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about that is that a lot of our surviving Irish manuscripts survive in those places. They didn't survive in Ireland. Yes. Right. And yes. that's where a lot of our poetry and our glasses that I talked about earlier are to be found. Mm -hmm. It's most interesting. And without yeah. those manuscripts in those European countries, Thurnyson could never have done the work that he did to establish the grammar of the Irish, of the old Irish language, or certainly it would have been constricted because a lot of the monks were grammarians as well. And therefore their little doodles included explanations of the grammar of the words and so on. Oh, that's board. wonderful. Yeah. So I, I mentioned that now, as well as that, popular Irish literature wasn't just confined to Ireland. So the most popular story in the courts of the princes and kings of Europe in the 11th and 12th century was the voyage of St. Brendan, Navigatio Brandani, right? And that now that wasn't written in Irish, it was written in Latin, but of course it was written in Ireland. And it tells the apocryphal tale of how St. Brendan, or maybe not so apocryphal, of how St. Brendan, the navigator, set out from his native Kerry and discovered America. And what's interesting about that story is that the voyage was recreated in the 20th century by a man, an English explorer by the name of Tim Severin, who built a boat in Kerry, identical in all its forms to the boat that was built by St. Brendan and using only the same material that would have been available at the time of St. Brendan. And he subsequently sailed from Ireland up the coast of Scotland, over to Iceland, onto Greenland, and then arrived in Nova Scotia. Now that's on film. You can you can Google that if you're into it, the voyage of St. Brendan or the voyage of Tim Severn. And in the story of St. Brendan, he describes things like landing on the on what he thought was an island, and then the island began to move, and it was in fact that they had landed on the back of a whale. <laughs> but he also describes mountains of crystal, which are, of course, icebergs. And yes. he describes mountains which are on fire, which are maybe perhaps uh, volcanic uh, sites that he saw in Iceland or Greenland or wherever and mm -hmm. a lot of scholarship has been done on deciphering whether what's written in the voyage of St. Brendan was something that could actually have been seen and yeah. if you're describing mountains of crystal and ice th there weren't too many of them around Kerry shall we say so <laughs> perhaps perhaps there's an element of truth in the voyage of St. Brendan we don't know and we will never know but what is certain is that Tim Severin proved that it could have happened. So, yeah. uh, but the interesting thing is that that story was the best-selling book in Europe for 
a couple of centuries. Yeah. It's that, that European connection, a lot of people think that that only began when the European Union started. Um, particularly here in the UK, sometimes you get the question, do you think Ireland will leave the EU? And, you know, this kind of, again, these these boundaries between us as countries are effectively imagined. They are, yes. You know, we, we owe so much of our culture to Europe. Um, and in fact, so many of our stories and traditions are shared with Europe. Mm. That was something I only kind of came to realise more recently. But um, all of this is to kind of say that by the time we get to 11th, 12th century, is that correct? Yes. The kind of period we're talking about? Irish is in or old Irish mm. was in good shape and in good standing and it had a way of being written down and shared more widely. Yes. And it, it was mm. actually developing in those centuries into what we now call Middle Irish. Mm-hmm. And the first kinds of literature and the first major mythological body of stories, the the Ruriacht or the Ulster Cycle, uh, a new body of stories coming more from the ordinary people called the Fianacht or the stories of the Fianna, the mythical band of Irish warriors or whatever. This was coming to the fore. And Hmm. uh, the new language, the new Irish language, is still containing many of the elements of old Irish, but developing an easier format for us today to read back over at least, uh, that was beginning to take root at that time. So that the period of the 11th and the 12th and the 13th century was when the Fianacht was in its heyday. The Fianacht okay. being the language or the, the stories of Finn McCool or Finn McCool and his warriors. And again, there's a Christian element in that because... Mm-hmm. Most of the stories that we have of the Fianacht are predicated on the tale of how when the Fianna became old, they began to die away and there was only a few of them left. And they were giants, of course. And in the most famous com- compilation of the Fianacht stories is called Agal of Nishanoroch, and that is the dialect or the dialogue of the old men. And these were the, the remains of the Fianna. There was Phil McCool and a couple of his close companions. And they're sitting around talking about the good old days when St. Patrick comes along. And mm-hmm. St. Patrick is only a very small little man, whereas the Fianna are giants. The book of the Ogle of Nishanora consists of St. Patrick saying, tell us about what you did when you went on a hunt. And then... <laughs> They go into a large number of stories about the day they were hunting for this and the day they were hunting for that and whatever else. And at the end of it, then St. Patrick say, says something like, a good story, well told. And they go to sleep for the night or whatever else. So it's yeah. a compilation of stories and this is the device that's used. But yes. uh, the legend, of course, has it then that at the end of it all, St. Patrick baptizes them because it's necessary for the monks and the writers of these stories to show that irrespective of how noble or how mythical or magnificent the tales are or the warriors were, that Christianity was necessary for their salvation. Of course, that small eye imperialism again. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. anyway, and it was a nice little uh, way of tidying up the story at the end. And we're all familiar, I suppose, with the story of the children of Lyr. And yes. there's a variation on the, the Phoenix in that where the children of Lyr are washed up on the shore as old people, but before they die, they're baptized mm-hmm. and they're saved mm-hmm. because they're baptized. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. Of course, because the legend tells the, how the children spent many hundreds of years in different yes. parts of yes. Ireland. Yeah, and, that's, and then they would have, so they would have washed up post Christianity coming to Ireland, of course. And yes. that's a variation on um, a common motif that's to be found in many of the Irish tales. So, for example, a lot of the voyage tales, not so much the voyage of St. Brendan now, but other, the voyage of Bran, various voyage tales, they're gone for hundreds of years, but they think they're only gone for a relatively short time. So when they come back, yeah. they know nobody. And if yeah. they stand on the ground, then they cannot return to this other mythical land where they have been. And the most famous example yeah. of that is the story of Chirnanog, which has mm-hmm. Oshin and Neve. Oshin being uh, the son of Finn McCool. And the story of Oshin and Neve, that's part of the Fenians as well, the Fenian cycle. He goes to a land called Chirnanog, the land of youth. And he's there for what he thinks is a short time. But when he comes back, he discovers that everybody that he knew was dead. And he makes the fatal mistake of setting his foot on the ground and then he becomes an old man. But again, Mm -hmm. he's baptised and he's saved by his baptism. Of course. uh, In that story. Yeah. And there are many, uh, there are examples of that, of course. The most famous example that you would have in English folk tales or European folk tales of that is the story of Rip Van Winkle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, you see how folklore and mythology and everything are all interwoven with each other. Absolutely. So we've kind of come to the Fenioch era of what we can trace, what we can read. This is the Middle Irish. Yes. How long does this Middle Irish period extend for and what are some of the hallmarks of that period? Yeah. Well, uh, just to go back for a moment, if I may, the, the, the classical Old Irish period is said to be from around 600 to 900 AD. And from 900 AD to 1200 is considered to be the Middle Irish period. Right. But with obviously with the tail into the 1300s, shall we say. Yeah. These things don't happen overnight. They happen no. over a long period of time. But from around 1200 to 1600 would be considered early modern Irish. Okay. But there's an overlap there with Middle Irish. And then the modern Irish language would be from, say, 1600 to the present day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about blocks of three or 400 years. Yeah. So the Fenioch was in root health uh, at that time Mm -hmm. and the Middle Irish language, but it was developing all the time. Mm -hmm. And other languages had come into Ireland at that stage. The study of Latin and Greek was widespread in the colleges and the, scholar, the scholarship. And then you had the Norman invasion, yes. which, as a book has pointed out recently, really wasn't a Norman invasion at all. It was an English invasion. And this business of the Normans having been French and being subsumed into Ireland and becoming more Irish than the Irish themselves, that's greatly overstated. Right. In actual fact... The people that came to Ireland who were classified as Normans were really English because it was a they had been in England for a hundred years. Yeah. At that stage. And while they may have had bits of French and some of their names were French, like the Burgo, for example, the Bourg, and Jaburka in modern Irish, Bork, they had the trappings of being French, and some of them had the language, of course, but they were predominantly English. Mm-hmm. It was another cultural ingredient to add to the pot Mm -hmm. and they brought a different version of Christianity which was very highly and rigorously organized larger monasteries not like the Celtic hermitages and all of that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and uh, large numbers of people living together in cloisters and 
all of that kind of thing. So you had a different, the, the church changed considerably in what we would call the, the Norman period. Mm-hmm. And you had the orders coming in, mm-hmm. the Benedictines and all of these people who had their own regulations and rules and who were in fact, if you like, Christian churches within the Christian church. Yeah. Who had followed their own edicts and the Augustinians and all of these people. Mm-hmm. So they were highly and rigorously organized and they subsumed a lot of what had gone before them. But they also created a stronger alternative to the traditional Celtic church. Mm -hmm. So that by the time the Norman period is finished, there's very little trace of what would have been the Island of Saints and Scholars Church. Gotcha. Which had a whole cultural, literary and art background going on there. You had Mm -hmm. the high crosses, Mm -hmm. the wonderful metalwork, Mm-hmm. The wonderful creativity that went into all of that, mm-hmm. uh, which reached its pinnacle in things like the the Arda Chalice, for example, or the Book of Kells. Yeah. Or, dare I say, the Book of Lindisfarne, which was written in Lindisfarne less than half a century after St. Coleman left it, mm. uh, which is more Irish than anything else wow. uh, in its style and everything like that. These books, the Book of Doro and so on, Incidentally, the Book of Kells is thought to have been begun, and if not completed, on the island of Iona. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So um, it's named the Book of Kells because that's where it was found. It was Mm -hmm. actually stolen at one stage and buried for a while, then it was recovered. So that's how close we went to losing that book. God, isn't that frightening? Yeah, we lost thousands of books. And there's, tantalizingly, there's references in the literature to other books and what they contain. that yeah. they don't exist lost to us. And, yeah. and these books would have contained like you're saying a lot of these little margin notes and kind of little moments of Irish and explanations of the language yeah. well two, two kinds of books there were the the works of art like yes. the book of Kells and the book of Doro and those things and they were they were said to be altar books the book of Kells is the four gospels and it was for for leaving on the altar for reading pieces mm-hmm. and of course because it's an altar book it's in Latin yes. um the other literary books that we're talking about were manuscripts telling the stories that we're talking about, the, the various stories, whether they were in Latin or in Irish. And um, they were less well-preserved, I suppose, because the, yeah. the, 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 the books of the church were considered to be the most valuable of the books. And the beautifully illustrated books, everybody could see there were works of art, so they were highly prized and protected. Yeah. But I, I think it's safe to say that for every one that we have, there were dozens that we lost. Yeah. You know, there are little small prayer books in Irish as well, little mm. psalters and things like that that, you, that exist. And the bilingual ones are the earliest of them, and they're fascinating altogether. Mm-hmm. And uh, people who study Old and Middle Irish get to study some of those. Oh, that's special. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You don't get to study the actual book, of course, but you get to study the texts as, as they're written down from them. So to answer your question, by the 1300s and so on, the Irish language is changing irrevocably at that stage. And right. the culture that sustained Old Irish and the beginning and Middle Irish is also changing. Yes. Under the influence of this more systematic and rigorous church that has come in, yeah. which has a much more disciplinarian approach uh, to Christianity than the Celtic churches would have had. Right. Right. So the penitential approach to Christianity is beginning to take more of a root at that stage. But, of course, Irish chieftains and that 
kind of take it or leave it. You must remember that at all in all of the period that we're talking about, old Irish, middle Irish, modern, um, early modern Irish, mm-hmm. there were wars taking place in Ireland between tribes and leaders yeah. and kings and Ireland, even at a time when it was considered to be the bastion of culture and civilization in Europe, was mm-hmm. wrecked by war and by yeah. cattle raiding and all of this. So in case anybody gets too smug about how civilized we were compared to every other country, they didn't. They never lost the, the, the Celtic propensity for going to war. Right. So we come out of this middle period then where culture is shifting and of course where a culture shifts the language also is always going to shift and by my remembering of history in Irish we're now coming into a period where we begin to see um, Ireland being colonised on a much more intentional and aggressive scale and this has big implications for the language it does Um, if we we use the term the Normans um, loosely because as I said I've qualified earlier what we mean by the Normans Mm -hmm. but if we take it that the Normans had a better system of establishing themselves simply because they built castles right and tower houses and keeps right yeah therefore they were able to establish themselves in parts of the country that they couldn't have reached if they didn't have that they also had trained soldiers to some extent and they had coats of mail and things like that. So from a military point of view, they were successful in establishing themselves in different parts of Ireland. But what happened was, and this is again shorthand, but an accommodation was reached between the people around them and themselves. And eventually the process of the Gaelicization of the Normans took place. They intermarried to some extent with the Irish. They began to speak the Irish language. And it became necessary for England, remember, England had at this stage a claim to Ireland. Okay. But it was unable to enforce it. It, it had its its people, shall we say, in Ireland in the form of what we call the Normans. Yes, okay. The Normans began to become Irish, so it became necessary to pass the edicts which were known as the Statutes of Kilkenny. Uh, and these uh, banned intermarriage with the Irish and the use of the Irish language and things like that for their people, right? Oh. Uh, but... They were unsuccessful because obviously how were you going to enforce that i mean cultural development has a momentum all of its own edicts written down cannot change unless they're enforced by physical force and they weren't in a position to do that mm. so these were you were moving on to the subsequent centuries now but but still politically ireland was relatively independent occasionally Irish chieftains and lords who were very elevated people would sign some kind of a treaty or a document to say that they recognised Henry II or some English king as the king. But they might as well have been recognising the king of Russia, you know, if there was a king in Russia at the time. So it, it, it was a meaningless kind of a business. Yeah. It was only when you came to the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries that mm-hmm. the, the project of the degalicization of Ireland and the and the, the colonization of Ireland really took off in in England, mm-hmm. the Elizabethan era, if you like, and you had um, the po- most powerful Irish chieftains O'Neill and O'Donnell, O'Neill and O'Donnell in Ulster, who 
resisted that very successfully to begin with, but who critically lost the Battle of Kinsale. And having lost the Battle of Kinsale, were forced to retreat with their allies to Ulster and then subsequently for fear of being killed they left Ireland in what was called the Flight of the Earls yeah. and essentially the the strongest political and military Irish leadership was gone at that point but it didn't stop subsequent rebellions later in that 17th century and then in 1798 in the 18th century and then the Young Irelanders in the 19th century and the Fenians right into the 20th century when you had the Irish Republican Volunteers, Irish Republican Army, the 1916 Rising, the War of Independence. Yeah. There's a, a sequence to all of this. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly uh, as connected as people would see it, but okay. the Irish had very good memories. If we go back to where we began the conversation, mm-hmm. the learning of genealogies and the writing of genealogies was a huge aspect of early Irish literature. Right. Right. And it was prized, the knowledge of genealogies, the knowledge of place names then. There was a whole other area of literature. Yeah. I mentioned voyage tales and mythology. Mm-hmm. But these were two other massively important areas of early Irish literature. Yeah. And because... This respect for history and who you were and your place and your property and everything like that was so deeply ingrained in the Irish, early Irish. It continued generation after generation. It's part of our DNA. Mm-hmm. And even today, it's a very strong aspect of being Irish. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they say you're in another country at the moment, but they say you never lose your Irishness. Yeah. I'm sure that the people who know you who are English would agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With that emphasis on genealogy, history, and that actually expands to so many other areas of kind of the older Irish culture that I would have an awareness of as well. Like even if you think about Druids and things like that, their role in carrying the folklore, which we see in lots of different cultures, but it's, it connects to that as well, doesn't it? So we have what we kind of frame, as you say, is this prolonged period of um yes oh, i don't know what to call it colonial colonization colonial history oppression oppression yeah colonization yeah colonization yeah. and suppression and of course uh, it was only really in the elizabethan time that cultural oppression became a part of it we're all familiar with the famous letter or infamous letter that spencer who's regarded as a wonderful english poet wrote mm-hmm. to queen elizabeth when he called for the irish language to be exterminated and he said famously the tongue being English the heart must needs be English is what he wrote to Queen Elizabeth he understood that the biggest obstacle to the colonization of Ireland was the Irish language absolutely and Queen Elizabeth paradoxically saw that he was right and I say paradoxically because she was quite interested in the Irish language and she had commissioned uh, a book the Bible to be written in Irish, which it was. My gosh. Yeah, obviously for the purpose of the Protestants. The Protestant religion was in Ireland now, and the planters were Protestants, predominantly. And um, it was for their use, but it never took off among them, because obviously Irish wasn't their language. Yeah. And it was the language of some of them subsequently, but it never gained the momentum. Had the Protestants of Ireland in those centuries done what the Normans did and t- taken on the Irish language in the way that 
we might have hoped they would. And the Bible and the books of the Protestant faith being in Irish, mm-hmm. perhaps the Irish language could not would not have been exterminated in the way that it was. Yeah. But you must remember that the political project of colonization of Ireland went on over several centuries mm-hmm. subsequently. And with each defeat for Ireland, the political project became stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. The patrons, for example, of the poets were the Irish chieftains. When the Irish chieftains were defeated, the poets had no patrons. And subsequently, yeah. the, the whole bardic system that Ireland had built up over those in the in, medie- in medieval times and in later medieval times, bardic poetry, all of that. These were intellectuals. They were academics, these poets. Mm-hmm. They weren't just fellows who could put a few lines together. Yeah, no, they were very important politically and very respected and decorated, if you could use that word. Yes. Yeah. But once their system of patronage was dismantled by the political project of colonization over a number of centuries, then that whole system collapsed. Mm-hmm. Okay, Thomas Consuspiog Ahogan Shan Shaw, Augustome Giri Siver Nidraline occur wet. So shinlauer.com, L E A B H A R.com. Shinsev Chloeo, in my tonan lower August comicy August Marchinda all the chuj coli August the chuj galor diniela atha ekor lower amach anshin trigailge. So for those of you who are interested in checking out what Coley does as a publisher, I would encourage you to head to lower.com. That word lower means book in Irish. L-E-A-B-H-A-R.com. You can find children's books, you can find graphic novels, you can find more information about different people who are writing in this absolutely fantastic language. And don't forget, I have show notes up for this episode. So if you're interested in seeing the Irish words that we're using in the conversation written down, if you're interested in a little bit of an index of this podcast so you can jump back in at different points, that's all in the show notes for you. And I would love you to go there and check it out. You're going to find links. You're going to find a little bit more information on what we're talking about today. So let's get back into this conversation and let's discover what pressures the Irish language was being faced with in the 18th and 19th century. Once their system of patronage was dismantled by the political project of colonization over a number of centuries, then that whole system collapsed. So it wasn't just a collapse on a military side or a political side, it was a collapse across the board. So that by the time we come to the 19th century, the 18th and 19th century, Irish culture is very much on the back foot. And the Irish language itself is beginning to feel the pressure. Notwithstanding the fact that at the beginning of the 19th century, the vast majority of people in Ireland were Irish speakers, mm-hmm. you were beginning to see people who were bilingual. Yeah. And the famine, obviously, in the middle of that 19th century, then are the Great Famine, because there were other famines as well going on. Yeah. But the Great Famine dealt the Irish language, what we say in Irish was Willa Marafat Namwikia, which was the blow that killed the pig. Mm-hmm. But it, this was the most devastating blow to the Irish language. Following fast on the heels of the Education Act of 1829, which established the national school system. And the national school system was established by England to educate people through English. Yes. 
and Irish was banned and you, you were all know the stories of the tally sticks and all of that kind of thing that the child had to wear around his neck a stick and there was a notch put, put in it for every Irish word that he used and he got a slap for that at the end of the day God. so now Irish people who couldn't speak English some of them were sending their children to these schools yeah because they began to see or think that the only way forward was with this other language and in the 19th century, English police forces were established in Ireland, subsequently became the Royal Irish Constabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, these kinds of people, these were good jobs, right? Absolutely, yeah. And then you had teachers, and they were good jobs. And then you had administrators and civil servants and all kinds of people that to aspire to be one of those and to be well off, you had to be an English speaker. Mm-hmm. So between the numbers post-famine who were immigrating to other countries with a smattering of English and their children having a bit that they learned in a school perhaps mm-hmm. the depopulation of the strongest Irish speaking areas in the west and the northwest and so on and so forth and the whole country indeed mm-hmm. the Irish language went into uh, a serious spot downward spiral at mm-hmm. that point mm-hmm. and Britain's grip on the country politically and culturally through the education system and through the paramilitary police that it had in Ireland and its its various structures and court systems and everything else, uh, all of that contributed to the decline of Irish, which in turn then led, as you know, at the end of the 19th century mm-hmm. to the what was called the Irish Revival. Yes. Now, the Irish Revival was successful in cultural terms, but it wasn't successful in linguistic terms. Yes. While it led to the establishment of Conrad Magalia, and that's the Gaelic League and various cultural organisations and a, a greater interest in Irish and people learning Irish and Irish being brought into the university in spite of the English government and all that. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the decline and the move to English and the veneer of respectability that English gave, yeah. that was irreversible at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And shamefully... In the hundred years since Ireland, or this part of Ireland, got its independence, Irish governments have failed miserably to reverse that. Yes. And in fact, they've actively contributed in many respects mm-hmm. to the continued decline of the Irish language mm-hmm. and to its being sidelined to a greater or lesser extent and to the very poor quality of Irish language teaching that goes on in primary schools today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, that is what happens when... Because language is so linked to how people live. Correct. There's a, in the, I think it's the opening scene of uh, Translations by Brian Friel. Yes. Which is a famous play by a famous Irish playwright. One of the lead characters. Now, the play was written in, in English, but the premise of the play is that there is a, a young Irish lady up. I think, is it Donegal? Donegal, yes. Um, and she is speaking in Irish and she meets an English soldier who is speaking in English and the premise is they can't understand each other. But someone says to her something about going to the hedge school. Are you not going to go down to the school? And she says, well, they're going to teach me Latin and Greek and I need work. So I need to learn English. Yes. And this is the thing. You, It's all very well to hold on to culture. And I mean, obviously I attach great importance to that myself but the fact remains if you are in a situation where you cannot feed yourself 
unless you switch languages, you're going to switch languages. That's it. And countless people had to make that decision over a very prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because we're not the only people who over the process of colonization were part of that thing that Spencer seems to have brought on this idea of if you can colonize someone's mind. Yes. If you can become the mode of thinking. Yes then your work is done. Yeah, well, it's also interesting that you mentioned translations because that play is about the regiment of the British Army that was given the task of changing the Irish place names into English. This was another key step in the dismantling of the Irish language. The the, the names of the villages, I mentioned Lugachampel and Garianaba to you earlier on. They are spelt now Garianaba which is Gari Anabwa, the Garden of the Abbot, is spelled G-A-R-R-Y-N-A-B-B-A, which is gobbledygook, right? It means absolutely nothing, yeah, right? The interesting thing is, though, that the people here still pronounce it as Gari Anabwa in Irish. They say it in Irish, mm. and they say Lagachampel in Irish, still. They don't say Luga Temple, which is how it's spelled. But mm-hmm. th- there are exceptions, though, those two place names. But the point being that Brian Friel understood. Brian Friel was attempting to explain things about what was going on in the north of Ireland, which was the logical working out of what had gone in the centuries before. He was attempting, he was identifying the project that we're talking about of destroying the culture as being the key weapon of imperialism absolutely and the soldier who falls in love with the girl in Donegal he's there to change the name of the place that they live in into something that will be meaningless in time to come and uh, between that and the national schools and the famine and the various other disasters it's easy to see why the Irish language could not maintain itself and support itself in, yeah. in the 19th century. Yeah. Can I ask about one other event that I have always maybe incorrectly connected to part of um, kind of difficulty for the Irish language, the penal laws? Well, the penal laws were not uh, as devastating to the Irish language as the other factors that we've discussed previously, like the establishment yeah. of the, the national schools, the, um, the changing of the place names and all of the other things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. The penal laws were predominantly uh, aimed at the Catholic religion. Right. And they were designed to suppress the Catholic religion so that you were discriminated against on the basis of your religion. And you weren't allowed to own certain things like a horse above a certain value or you were only allowed so many windows in your house and all kinds of bizarre impositions. Mm -hmm. And of course... It, priests were hunted down and killed. They were considered to be subversive, and mass was banned. And so it was. It was quite. It, it was just a sectarian series of laws to suppress Catholicism. Okay. Um, and priests were educated then abroad, and they came back to Ireland. And again, an interesting thing there is that some of the priests who were being educated abroad were Irish scholars. And they were writing the manuscripts of the time in other in foreign countries. Yeah, you know, and you you did have um, 
in the years, in the centuries before the penal laws, you had the, the four masters and all kinds of priests and monks who were brothers and so on, who wrote fantastic uh, manuscripts of that era, which we still have. But um, the penal laws were repealed then in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think it was in 1829. And of course, that's what made Daniel O'Connell because he led the campaign for the repeal of the penal laws. Yeah. But bear in mind that that was only less than 30 years after the Act of Union. The Act of Union in 1800, following the the failed 1798 rebellion, mm-hmm. that was kind of the final nail in Ireland's independence. Yeah. And of course, the Act of Union uh, is still relevant to the present day. But it was the formalization of the, abol- the they abolished the Irish Parliament, which was to a certain extent representative of Ireland. Yeah. It wasn't representative of an independent Ireland, but it was representative of Ireland being slightly different to England. Mm-hmm. So that was abolished. And anybody who was a representative then or an MP had to go to England. And people then came along like Daniel O'Connell, who was of the gentry, but he was a Catholic. Yeah. And what's most significant about those people is that English was the language they used. They never they never used Irish. Daniel O'Connell was a native Irish speaker. Yeah. But he never spoke in Irish at a rally. Wow. So unwittingly, or in his case, people some people would say wittingly okay. uh, or deliberately, mm-hmm. they spoke in English. Yeah. And, and they made, advocated in English and made their case in English. So he often addressed people in large monster meetings who hadn't a clue what he was saying. Wow. But it was symbolically very powerful mm-hmm. that the great, the liberator, as he was called, Daniel O'Connell, was speaking the Queen's English. Yeah, it's profound. Yeah. It's profound. I, I remember when I was studying English literature in university, learning about um, Nigerian literature. So Chinua Achebe, Ngugi Wationgo. Yes, I, I have a book of his in Irish. Does this Things Fall Apart? Chinua Achebe? Yes, that's the one. It was translated by a woman from Morris into Irish. That's a brilliant, brilliant book. But just that, that debate of hmm. do I speak in a language that can reach the maximum number of people? And if I choose to do that, like, is that the way to share my culture far and wide? But if I do that, what am I taking by not writing in my own language? What am, I'm not enriching my own language with my spirit, with my yes. experience of culture, with my life. And to, to learn, even now we see that happening. You know, we have all sorts of, all sorts of, you know, correcting of grammar that doesn't necessarily need correcting when you look at the origins of the speaker yes well you know that's true but you have there's another paradox which i suppose brings us to the 20th and 21st centuries yeah which is the establishment of now what has now been called irish culture right and the irish times refers to irish literature mm-hmm. it doesn't include irish no right mm-hmm. now uh, at the risk of sounding pedantic, to me, Irish literature is literature in Irish, right? Yeah. What the Irish Times is talking about is Anglo-Irish literature. Yeah. But obviously, because it has always been viewed as the Anglo-Irish newspaper, they're anxious to avoid that sort of a label. Papers have their angles, don't they? Oh, they do. Well, I mean, yeah, they are what they are, you know. Yeah. 
So we arrive at a situation today where there is an independent Irish state. Mm-hmm. And we are kind of post-Irish revival. So you mentioned linguistically it wasn't very successful. No. The interesting thing about, say, the 1916 Rising was that six of the seven signatories of the proclamation were members of Colonialia. Mm-hmm. And there were strong Irish language advocates. Michael Collins himself was a member of Conrad Nagrelia and he said that if they achieved freedom but failed to revive the Irish language, then it would not have been worth the effort. So when the Free State was established, over time they converted all the schools into Irish-speaking schools, right? So everything was taught through Irish. Okay. Uh, But because the education system was primitive in itself in many respects, and corporal punishment was widely used in the system, the Irish language became associated to a certain extent with that sort of repressive Mm -hmm. education. Uh, But in addition to that, they failed to take the other necessary measures in politics and in society at large, which would have been necessary for the Irish language to have become re-established in the country. So, for example, they left the names of the places in English. Yeah. The first thing that should have been done was that Cork should have been called Corky and there should have been no Cork underneath it, right? Or above it, as it is in, in this country. Galway should have been Galway. Yeah. You know, the ones that were so easy to do, they wouldn't do them. Didn't get done. The politicians in the Dáil, Dublin, spoke English. Some of them. Some of them tried to speak Irish to a greater or lesser extent. Now, you could say, well, sure, they didn't have Irish. But when the Jewish people returned to Israel, that when they established it in the late 1940s, uh, at the expense of the Palestinians, mm-hmm. the first thing they did was they said, it's compulsory. If you're in the Knesset, you must speak th- this language. There was a period of time when they had to learn it. And if they didn't learn it, they couldn't be in there. And that was it. So that the, the Jewish language is widely spoken in Israel. Yeah. It wasn't 100 years ago. Yeah. Right? So uh, there was a failure of the will in Ireland in the 20th century to bring the Irish language to the position that it should have been in. I believe that the reason for that was that there was a catastrophic civil war in Ireland. Yes. And that people were ashamed of themselves, a lot of people who had participated in that in one form or another, that the hundreds of years of the project that we described earlier of colonization of mind and physically uh, in this country had done a great, much better job than even the English realized. Yeah, yeah. And it's, like it or not, a lot of Irish people considered English to be a better language than the Irish language. Mm-hmm. And that is why you have the situation that I mentioned previously where Irish literature, according to the, the, our most prominent newspaper, the Irish Times, is not in Irish. Irish literature is what's written in English by Irish people. Yes. Now, you could spend, I'm sure Fintan O'Toole would have a view on that, but you could spend days arguing about that. But mm-hmm. to me, Irish literature is in Irish and Anglo-Irish literature is what's written by Irish people in In English. English. And I don't use the term Anglo-Irish as a pejorative term. No. I just use it as a correct term. Yeah. But 
the nuances of language, the nuances of description are being changed. And the narrative is controlled by people who do not see the world as you or I might see it, mm -hmm. as far as being Irish is concerned or what it is to be Irish. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you'll be told is that you don't have to speak Irish to be Irish. Yeah. That is very true. Yeah. But Francis Macanisa, who was a good friend of mine and who was president of Conor Nagelge for many years, was on a programme on RTE, which is very instrumental in the pushing of the English language. Mm -hmm. um, he was in the programme and he, it was an attempt made to ambush him by asking him that question. Would you consider somebody who doesn't speak Irish to be as Irish as somebody who does or as you are? Mm. He said, of course I would, he said. In my view, he said, anybody who wants to consider themselves Irish is Irish. But there is nothing more Irish than the Irish language. Yeah, very good answer. That's the nub of it. Yeah. But the Irish language has been marginalised in the modern Irish state. You have to fight to get your rights. Um, there's a lot of window dressing and craw thumping goes on about it by politicians and people like that. Mm -hmm. But they're they're not genuinely interested, the vast majority of them. And to be brutally frank, if the present situation continues, uh, the Irish language will do well survive uh, another hundred years yeah. in any meaningful form. The growth of the shrinking and shriveling because the people within it as the Irish people of the 19th century did, recognise hypocrisy for what it is. Yeah, that's very difficult. And I even remember, like, I, I mean, I was in the schooling system a while ago, so things might have changed now. And you will have seen this as well as a teacher coming through. But I remember being very upset and angry at the way that Irish was taught because I was fortunate enough to go to an Irish-speaking primary school, which is where the basis of my feel for Irish comes from, from actually speaking it. Now, it's it's imperfect, mm. but I'm okay with having imperfect Irish. I'd rather have imperfect Irish than no Irish at all. Um, Agreed. Yeah. Now, not everybody's going to be in a position to go to an Irish-speaking primary school. That's grand. Not everybody's going to be in a position to go to an Irish-speaking secondary school. That's grand. But what really bothered me when I went into secondary school was the way they insisted on teaching Irish as though everybody was an Irish speaker. That's a denial of reality. And I found that that alienated a lot of my classmates from the language. So instead of, instead of them making the strides that I could see them make in German and French, because they were taught German and French as though they were being taught a language, mm. this sort of denial of the state of the language um, and I don't mean the language itself, I mean the, of, of the... Um, the realities, yeah. Or the realities of how widespread the language is. Just a total denial. And and you were straight into the same types of exercises that you were expected to complete in the exam in English. Mm. So there was no acknowledgement that most people had been reared with English as their mother tongue and with the smattering of Irish to go along. You know, most Irish people will have a few basic Irish phrases, but they couldn't hold a conversation in Irish. Mm. Um, it's very, very, very easy for that to happen. And it distressed me so much that I remember people when I was in my final year of secondary education doing my leaving cert, which in, on the continent would be like the back or that type of thing, or the A-levels in the UK. And um, I remember people being relieved they would never have to look at Irish again. Yes. I, I, it, it upsets, to this day, I wrote an angry letter into 
the new uh, RTE, I think we're doing some sort of a, you know, they do a dressing down kind of post-mortem on the exams. And I wrote in a letter, I was furious. I said, look, I've done it. I've sat your exam. I've gone through the system you've put in front of me. And this is destroying people's connection to the language because you're using, people just felt stupid. Mm. They didn't feel, I could understand they wanted to give comprehensions and literature and poetry to foster that connection to Irish language, Irish literature. But you can't do that if you don't acknowledge the realities of where the language is and and meet people where they are. Is that something that's ongoing? Because I wouldn't really be as connected to it nowadays. It is. They're 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 tinkering constantly with that that the curriculum and they're yeah. upping the points for the oral, but the oral is a bit of a farce because you're kind of learning stuff off by heart for it. And they're not yeah. approaching the teaching of Irish in a professional way. Yeah. See, there are two kinds of people, as you pointed out yourself, who go into the secondary school system. There are people who have Irish to a greater or lesser extent. Native speakers are people like yourself who went to all Irish schools. And then you have people who have very little Irish. And with the state of Irish in the primary schools today, very, very little Irish, a lot of them. Right. So essentially, a lot of those people should start from scratch almost. Yeah. Whereas somebody like yourself and the girls with the people shouldn't have to start from scratch. Yeah. So there has been a lot of talk about a differentiated curriculum for people. But there isn't a genuine effort being made to address those issues yeah. in, in a systematic way and to provide a proper curriculum which will mm-hmm. earn the support of the learners and bring them forward with the language and that's so crucial that learner buy-in if you don't have that you have nothing yeah well that's that's the position as i see it um there's a lot of chopping and changing going on even as we speak and uh again it's indicative of the fact that the irish language is considered by the establishment and by the state by the center if you like as uh, a burden one person who I was going to say if he's up there looking down on us, but he's probably down there looking up towards us. Oh, God. We'd be very happy with that would be Mr. Spencer because his project has succeeded admirably Mm -hmm. and it now doesn't require the English to do it for him. The Irish are doing it for themselves. Yep. What is it? Foucauldian? Well, I I, I can think of a lot of words for it. Yeah, I'm sure. sure. So... To kind of round things off, and it's a, it, that's a, it's a sad note to be able to say that with conviction that we know that the language is being mistreated. People are being being denied access to something. Yes, that they deserve. Yeah. I, I I remember a few years ago I picked up a book. I was telling you about this on on uh, Lee McCall. Yes, had a trilogy of books. I've never managed to find the third one, but the first one is Dear Strontia. Yeah, and it's based in Ireland in the 1600s. And to read about Galway City in Irish, I equate it to when I first really learned about feminism Mm. in a way that wasn't so academic. When I started to see kind of more modern writers writing about feminism, I started to make that connection. Realizing there was something I had needed, words I had needed, that I, I didn't know how much I needed them because I didn't know they existed. Sure. When you can pick up a book, however slowly I went through it, and it was slow, but to be able to go through that book and read about where I am from in the language that belongs to me, mm. 
was incredible. Mm. And people are being, that experience is being taken away from them. Of course. As you say, mm. by having an incorrect infrastructure. So in the modern sort of fight for this language, what's this? What's the landscape of that like? And if people are listening here and they're curious about the language and supporting the survival of this language, what what would you say? What, what would you direct them to? Well, so why don't you ask me a hard question? Um, <laughs> the, the situation is very, very complex. Yeah. Um, the mechanism by which many people acquire Irish is the education system. Mm-hmm. And clearly there's serious difficulties there at the moment. Yeah. Uh, many of the teachers who have been trained and uh, in the last 20, 30 years are not competent uh, Irish speakers. Yeah. And it's it's paradoxical to, to expect a person who can't speak a language to teach a language. Absolutely, yeah. So there's need for reform and imagination in the education system. There is also need for a genuine political initiative, cross-party, nationwide initiative, to decide if the Irish language is to have a future or not. And if it is to have a future, then it has to become mainstream. Yeah. Not marginalised. Yeah. And for it to become mainstream, we need a situation where in every town there's a cafe where you can speak Irish. Absolutely. And where a very interesting thing against the tide is that there have been a number of excellent films recently made in Irish. Yeah. And they've been very successful. Mm-hmm. Right. So it shows, like, for example, it took us 20 years longer to get an all Irish TV channel than it took the Welsh to get a Welsh TV channel. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher gave them a Welsh TV channel. Yeah. And I remember saying at the time, only half in jest, if we were under the British, we'd have an, an Irish TV channel. Right? Uh, we had to fight and protest on the streets to get that. Yeah. Right? People went to jail to get that. That's the level of uh, challenge that we face. But TG Cahar has been a very positive thing. And it has brought a great deal of people to a different perspective on the Irish language. Mm-hmm. And even people who can't understand very much of it, they watch it with the subtitles and they feel that they own it to a certain extent yeah. again. Mm-hmm. Now, it's also interesting on a, as a PS to that, that RTE have now begun to adopt the TG Cahar model. Ah. And they're doing an awful lot more programmes about Ireland and about Irish history and people... Uh, and so on and so forth and cultural programs there was a snide kind of looking down their nose for a long time at TG Cahar and what it was doing mm-hmm. until it became apparent that a lot of people liked it <laughs> because it was stories about the Irish people made by the Irish people yeah. you know and I don't want to go too far with that analogy because RT to a certain extent there are people in there who make a good effort as well yeah. but but its corporate policy was anti-Irish for a long, long time. Yeah. And they looked on it again as just an imposition. Yeah. There's that. Broadcasting, education, politics. You know, the the, the cupola fuckel is not going to be sufficient in politics. No. I mean, you have a, you have a system in Dáil Éireann where a person can make a speech in Irish or English. Okay. But if you make it in Irish, most of the CDs won't even bother to put on the headphones to listen to what you're saying. Most of the journalists won't cover what you said. So why would you speak in in Irish? Yeah. You know, these are the kinds of things that have to be addressed. People have got to start Mm -hmm. naming these things. 
and they've got to start saying, is this what we want? Because if it is, let's forget about it completely. Or if it, if it isn't, like there's only one thing worse than the extermination of the Irish language, and that is keeping it alive when it's trying to die a natural death. But Emma, all of the opinion polls show yeah. large majority support for support for the Irish language, restoration of the Irish language, protection of the Irish language and everything else. Mm -hmm. If there was the same kind of support, let us say years ago for divorce, yeah. you would have had divorce without any bother. Yeah. But there is no political action based on what the opinion polls tell us. Mm. We had a Taoiseach from my own county here who proposed that Irish would not be, as he called it, compulsory for the for the leaving. The pejorative term compulsory, meaning that you're being forced to do it. Whereas maths is compulsory for the leaving cert, but you're not told that it's compulsory. You're told it's a core subject. Exactly. You know, and that backfired so badly on MD Kenny that he had to withdraw that policy. Yeah. So we have public support, but not there is public support or infrastructure yeah. to support what the public yes. would yeah. want. The public supports mm -hmm. it in principle, which is the important thing. Yeah. But they don't know any more than you or I know what is necessary to achieve what they want. Yeah. And the people who have are tasked with achieving what they want are not prepared to address the issues sufficiently. There are some very dedicated people in politics and elsewhere who try to do their best. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of Catherine Connolly, mm -hmm. for example, or Eamon O'Keeve, mm -hmm. or different people from different parties, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, Pierce Doherty is a wonderful Irish speaker, mm -hmm. but I'm waiting for the day when he makes his speech on the budget in Irish. Yeah. And challenges them, and prefaces it by saying, I intend to make my speech on today's budget in Irish. And if you don't like that, well, you can lump it. That's what yeah. he needs to say. And uh, let them let the press office or whatever make available his speech in English for the people that don't have Irish or whatever afterwards. But we need to begin to see those things in the doll, not just symbolic things like saying Goromagath at the end of your speech, which yeah. is grand. You know, but it's not worth a throning, as we say. Yeah, because you know. it's not really a meaningful part of public life if it's not something it's not. that's being used in that no. way. Yeah. No. So, having said all that, I'm not uh, totally downbeat about the Irish language. I, I meet a lot of young Irish people like yourself who are really into it. And in Conrad Nogelia, there are many, many young people like you involved in it. And the president is a young woman like you now. And that kind of thing. So there's a lot of positive things, but the infrastructure that is necessary for the revival of Irish to an acceptable level is not in place. Yeah. Um, some of it is, but some, but it's not being built on, and a lot of it isn't there. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with us being anti the English language, by the way. No, not we at all. all. The English language is as much a part of our heritage now as the Irish language. Yes. Yes. But it's not the same. No, it's not the same thing. Yeah. No. This is and this is what we're trying to this is the process of healing. This is the process of healing. Yeah. Where we're trying to reclaim and restore what what can meaningfully be reclaimed and restored. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you know the saying that's attributed, I think it's to Brendan Behan. Mm -hmm. It took the English seven hundred years to beat the colonial mentality into the Irish. It's going to take another 700 years to beat it out of them. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, 
I'd be disappointed though because I won't be around to see it. Oh, stop. Yeah. Well, look, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share that you want people to know about this language? Well, uh, there are many aspects of the Irish language that are not as morose, perhaps, as we have made it sound. <laughs> and um, it's still available to people who want to listen to it on Radio Nogelsochta, on Radio Falsha, which is in Belfast. And there's Radio Nalifa in Dublin. There's three radio stations broadcasting in Irish. You have Tichy Cahar, which is the Irish language TV channel. You have many books uh, that are available from many different publishers in the Irish language. There's many excellent courses for people who want to learn it, beginner's courses. There are online courses. There are bodies who offer, offer courses in the Irish language. And if people want to learn it or improve it, there are ways of doing that as well. So I would say to the people who would like to be better at Irish and who have a working knowledge of it or who would like to learn it from scratch, that there's no excuse <laughs> other than to make the effort, yeah. right? You're a, a girl who can speak Irish. My daughter was brought up speaking Irish. And we have guaranteed, our generation have guaranteed that there will be a few people at least who will speak Irish. Hopefully you live to be in your 90s or 100. And if at some stage in the future you ever happen to have children or whatever else, you'll make sure that they have it too. Absolutely. So we will have guaranteed that Mr. Spencer will wait, need to wait another 100 or 200 years before he gets his wish. Love it. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today and hopefully we will see you again soon. You're very, very welcome, Emma. Yes, thank you so much to Coleman O'Reilly for being so generous with his time, his knowledge and his passion for this language that's so close to both of our hearts, as you can hear as we talk. We mentioned the word meaningful quite a lot at the end of that podcast, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot as I've been reflecting on the conversation. How do we make this language a meaningful part of public life again? How do we do that in a way that is thoughtful and inclusive and practical in terms of how Irish life has shifted around the language since? Now, early in the conversation, Coley rightly reminded us that just because we had this incredible cultural export, it didn't exempt us from problematic aspects of how our country was. And that's true today. There are many problematic aspects of Irish society that could easily feed into the way that the language might be conceived of, might be thought of, and might make its way into the structures of Irish society. And that's where that word meaningful comes back again in a big way. How do we make Irish truly accessible? What are those processes going to look like? How does that feed in in a structural way? It, it really, really is food for thought another aspect of this conversation that is so meaningful to me is remember earlier in the podcast when Coley mentioned that our old Irish was primarily a spoken language we passed on our traditions by speaking to each other by the telling of stories it's really wonderful to think that what we've been listening to today is a modern day example of that type of education continuing. And there's a word for that in Irish, it's called bail igis. Bail meaning mouth, igis meaning education. That's how we used to pass along our knowledge in, well, 
probably pretty much every culture. Um, finally, it's so meaningful to me that you have been here today as well to participate in this Baylegis, that you've been able to have passed along to you this knowledge as well. And I hope you have joy of it. I hope it sparks an interest for you in this language. And if it's a language that you started learning and you left behind you, maybe it'll spark you to get back into it again. It certainly has inspired me. So folks, thank you all so much for today, for hanging out, for having this conversation. And if you want to stay in touch with me, if you want to hear about what I'm up to, what I'm doing, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on TikTok. Of course, I'm over on Patreon. And I stream on Twitch three times a week. So I would love to see you. Feel free to drop into any of those mediums and say hi. And I guess there's nothing else to say except Slán Tamil, Agus Fekimishivarish. You've been listening to Krayla with Emma O'Reilly. Gurmila Mahagaf Gadeir, Agus Slán Tamil.